everyone. This is Josh Pottinger here. Joining me is Jason Chorgianis, and we've got Joyce Crivellari and Rebecca Sterling. So we've got a full crowd this morning. Joyce and Rebecca, they both work with our ultra high net worth families across the country. So they're working with teams like ours and helping high net worth families, helping them with things like tax and estate planning and philanthropic objectives. And so we're going to have a good conversation today about some important tax strategies around exiting a company. And so, Joyce, thank you for joining us today. You there? Absolutely. I'm here. Nice to nice to be here today, Josh. Thank you so much. Okay, good. Rebecca, we got you hooked in here? I'm here. Okay. I'm here. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, thank you both. Thank you both. We really, really do appreciate it. So, we're going to cover qualified small business stock today. And so this is one of those topics that whenever we post something around the importance of tax planning for business owners getting ready to exit, this is always a hot topic. People are really interested in learning how to mitigate their taxes. So I want to go ahead and just kick us off here by, Joyce, can you help us understand what qualified small business stock is? Absolutely. So I kind of, I would like to refer to this particular strategy and option. It's kind of a hidden gem for business owners because it's not something that will fit everyone's shares in their company. And so it's something that, you know, when you qualify for qualified small business stock, it can be extremely impactful, but it's not something that I would say is one of our, you know, kind of our mainstream tax strategies that we talk about all day, every day, just because it's kind of a a narrow scope for business owners that will qualify, whose shares will qualify as as small business stock. So we keep saying qualified small business stock. And as you know, we love acronyms in the tax planning world. So so from here on out, I'm going to refer to it as QSBS. And I know a lot of people will, will hear that acronym and say, you know, what in the world is that? Basically, QSBS is stock that qualifies under a particular section of the Internal Revenue Code. It happens to be section 1202. That basically these chairs will receive or, or have the opportunity for certain federal income tax benefits upon the sale of the stock. And what are those tax benefits? Essentially, the Internal Revenue Code permits owners of QSBS to exclude from federal income tax a portion or all of their capital gain upon sale of those shares. And so, you know, that right there, you can hear kind of the impact that that could have. And the impact can be up to the greater of 10 million or 10 times the cost basis if the stock meets the requirements in the code. So having up to 10 million be excluded from capital gain upon sale of a stock that qualifies as QSBS can be very meaningful for business owners upon exit. And if the stock is acquired on or after September 28, 2010, then it's eligible for 100% federal exclusion up to $10 million. Sounds kind of simple, just right there on its face to some extent, but there are a lot of intricacies related with QSBS and the qualification of QSBS. And also, I think it's important for business owners to note that there's not a lot of settled law in this area. You know, I don't necessarily want to use the term gray area, but there are some gray areas when dealing with QSBS. And so I think it really just kind of boils down to making a determination as as best you can 
as to whether or not your shares will qualify. And the best way to do that is to speak with your tax advisors, your CPAs, tax attorneys. Those are the ones who would be guiding and walking and reporting these things for a business owner. And so because there's not a lot of settled law and maybe some gray areas, it really depends on the guidance and the comfort level of a business owner's CPA and tax attorneys to really walk them through, do I qualify? And if so, how should I structure and move forward to take advantage of the benefits of the QSBS exclusion? One other thing I wanted to note here is that if the stock is QSBS, then you can also avoid the surtax, the 3.8% net investment income tax on the sale of those shares. So no, that was kind of a lot, but in a nutshell, that's QSBS. Hey, Joyce, it's Jason. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, Rebecca. Just taking it a step further in regards to the tax, you know, here we are in Texas, no state income tax, obviously, but for those states that do right. impose the state level income tax, if the stock is in USBS, does the gain exclusion also apply to the state income tax? That is a really good and interesting question, Jason. And, you know, I'm going to give what's going to sound like a recovering lawyer answer in that it depends on the state. So many states will follow. I mean, they do follow the federal income tax rules with respect to QSBS, but there are some exceptions. And then, you know, there are, you know, states where if they don't impose a state income tax, then you don't have a concern. But I I think the best answer there is it depends. Some states will follow the federal tax rules. Some might to a certain degree and others where there is no state income tax, you don't need to worry about that. Rebecca, do you have anything additional to add on the state income tax consideration? Sure, especially since I'm out in California where state income tax is a big consideration for us. So Joyce, I think that's absolutely correct. What I might add is just so for anyone listening who lives in any of these states, these states do that I'll list in just a second, do not follow federal or only follow federal partially. So California does not follow federal on QSBS. So any sale of QSBS qualifying shares, if you are a resident in California, are subject to California income tax. Other states that, to my knowledge, do not follow, or at least do not fully follow the federal exclusion rules are Pennsylvania, Alabama, Mississippi, Hawaii, and Massachusetts. Now, in some of those states, you may be able to do some planning to get around or minimize the state-level income tax on the QSBS stock when it is sold, but not in all states. So in California, for example, we can do some planning to minimize or eliminate the state-level income tax, which I'll discuss a little bit later in our conversation when I get to sort of planning for maximizing QSBS. But there can be some opportunities, even if your state does not follow the federal rules. Gotcha. So we're speaking about qualifying as QSBS. What are those requirements? I know that when we bring up the topic with folks, ordinarily they're They might be, if anything, uh, aware that you need to be a C corporation, you need to be domiciled in the United States. But what above and beyond that preliminary consideration must folks be aware of in order to potentially pursue this? Sure. That's a great, great question. So there are kind of two prongs to the analysis in determining whether 
your stock in a particular company may qualify for QSBS treatment. There are company requirements, right, that the company's activities and certain statuses have to meet. And then there are also individual shareholder requirements as well. So on the company side, as you just mentioned, the company has to be a domestic C-corporation. So if you own stock in an S-corporation or in an LLC or a or, well, LLC membership interest or partnership interest, those do not qualify. Only C-corporations qualify. That's number one on the company side. Number two on the company side, the company must conduct an active trader business for substantially all of the taxpayer's holding period. So that's kind of two prongs under the same test. So the first one is active trader business. What is that? That is actually sort of defined by excluding a bunch of things. And so it's kind of one of those gray areas that Joyce was talking about, but we know what is excluded from an active trader business because that is listed in the tax code. So active trader business for QSVS purposes does not include trader businesses that involve the performance of services in the fields of health, law, engineering, architecture, accounting, actuarial science, performing arts, consulting, athletics, financial services, those sorts of things where you're relying on the um, skill of the service provider. So those do not qualify. So for example, law firms, financial services industries, banks don't qualify. Moving on to that, like I just mentioned, banking, insurance, financing, leasing, investing, farming businesses, or businesses involving extractions of products. So mining industries, those don't qualify. And then finally, operating hotel, motel, restaurant, or similar businesses. So those are defined, as I said, by exclusion. So presumably anything else would qualify. That being said, this is where a lot of questions come up because there might be, for example, a fintech company that is more tech than financial. And that's where the gray area comes in. And we really rely on tax lawyers and CPAs to make a determination as to whether you are more tech or more finance in terms of your business activities. So that's the active business requirement. And then there's the substantially all of the holding period requirements. So when you first form and found a company, there are some startup times when the company is not always operating. So there are some exceptions for times when the company holds cash and is doing research and development and startup, but substantially all is generally about 80%. So for about 80% of the time that the shareholders owning the stock, that business should be one of these qualifying trader businesses, these active trader businesses. So that's number two. And then number three is the company can't own a lot of real estate or stocks and bonds securities. So it can't have more than 10% of the value of its gross assets consist of real property that's not used in the trader business or stocks and securities. So those are the three company requirements. On the owner side, because this is an additional set of requirements, right? The company might qualify for some owners, but not for others. So for example, I might own stock and mine qualifies, but Joyce's potentially in the same business might not qualify. And that's because again, they're separate owner requirements. So the owner must have held the stock for at least five years. This is kind of a tricky one, right? Because like, for example, for options or equity compensation, the holding period begins when the owner actually either exercises those options or restricted stock vests 
or RFUs vest. It's not when you get the grant. So holding periods can be a little bit tricky. And there is an option to sort of accelerate your holding period and start it early for equity comp if you make something called an 83B election. That's number one. Number two, the owner cannot be a C corporation. So C corporations don't qualify for a QSDS exclusion if they own stock in another corporation. You have to be an individual trust pass-through entity. Number three, the owner must have acquired the stock from the company at original issuance. So you can't buy it the secondary market. So I can't go buy half of Joyce's stock in the company from Joyce and then later qualify. I have to have gotten it in exchange for a contribution of assets to the company as um, an early investor or for services that I performed for the company. And then finally, and this is kind of another tricky one, at the time that the stock was issued by the company to me as the shareholder or to any other shareholder, the gross asset value of the company must have been $50 million or less. And that has to be the case at all times before it was issued to me and also immediately after it was issued to me. So, for example, if the company has $25 million of cash and $5 million and for gross asset test, it's tax basis of the assets in the company, we will get a $30 million value when it's issued. I'm okay. But if they have a really big cash infusion because they've taken on like um, some financing rounds and they have $55 million, then when I acquire my stock, then I don't qualify when the stock is sold down the line. But Joyce, for example, may have contributed initially when the company had very little value and she would qualify. One other thing that's important to note is it doesn't matter what the value of the company is when you ultimately sell the stock. We're looking at the acquisition date. So there are a lot of big tech companies out there that you've heard of where a lot of the original investors or founders do qualify for QSDS treatment, even though the valuation when they sell might be in the billions of dollars. That's good stuff. Rebecca, I had a quick question for you on the gross asset value of the company. What does somebody need to have in order to prove the value of the company at the time of acquisition? That's a great question. So you don't need to show anything to the IRS unless they question your claim of a QSVS exclusion. However, your accountant and most of the accountants with whom I work will want to verify before filing the income tax return and claiming a QSVS exclusion. They will want the company's records to look at their balance sheet, the company's internal balance sheet, to look at cash on hand and assets at the time the stock was issued. It's not the 409A value or anything like that. They'll go back and they'll verify in the company's records. Gotcha. Okay, that's super helpful. Now, a lot of times when we're talking to business owners out there, in the initial phases of the company, they started as an LLC or maybe a partnership, something simple like that. So maybe walk us through the importance of understanding the structure of the company and how that could potentially impact their ability to qualify here? Sure. That's a great question. So like I said, only domestic C corporations qualify, but a lot of companies might start out as partnerships or as LLCs typically because the owners, founders of those companies and early investors like the flexibility of LLCs and like the pass-through income taxation nature of those entities because then they're able to take a lot of the losses on their personal income tax returns. So 
having been formed initially as a pass-through entity does not prohibit the company from later qualifying if it does convert to a C corporation. However, the company still has to have been a domestic C corporation for substantially all of the taxpayer's holding period, which means in most cases that it will have had to convert pretty early on. Again, there's no clear law here on this particular issue, but I would guess, and this is just an educated guess, if you formed a company in 2000 as an LLC, and then you converted in 2012 to a C corporation, and then you sell in 2020, that would not be substantially all, right? Because 80% is the general rule. But if you founded the company in 2010, converted in 2011, and sell in 2020, I think that would probably sort of hit the mark there on the substantially all. That's number one. And number two, your holding period for the five-year mark starts on the conversion date. So that's another thing to keep in mind. A couple actually really interesting benefits if you do start as an LLC, for example, but partnership pass-through entity, is that when you convert for purposes of your cost basis in your C-corporation shares, you take a cost basis equal to the fair market value of the LLC when you convert. So let's say you have an LLC worth $3 million and you convert to a C-corp. Well, now you have $3 million of cost basis in your C-corporation. So instead of being potentially on sale limited to the $10 million of gain exclusion, you might get $30 million of gain exclusion, right? 10 times cost basis instead of $10 million. Now, there's some nuances. It only applies for post-conversion gains. So you might exclude the initial $3 million of appreciation from you know, the QSBS explosion. Don't want to get too into the weeds there. But um, there can be some benefits in starting as a pass-through entity and then later converting. Gotcha. Thanks, Rebecca. That's helpful. You know, I can see how probably some li- listeners' eyes are starting to glaze over and, and the wheels in their head are turning. So w- w- what should somebody do? if they think that they may have some stock that qualifies for for QSBS gain exclusion? So I'll go ahead and kind of give my thoughts there. And, you know, Josh, you're right. I mean, listening to all of the, and and kind of hearing about all of the different tests and the different nuances and things, you can see that there are a lot of moving parts. And again, kind of the importance of relying on tax advisors to determine whether or not, like make that final determination of whether or not your shares would qualify as QSBS. But generally speaking, if someone already owns stock that may qualify, there's not really anything that they need to do to make sure that the gain from the sale can be excluded as long as they hit the five-year holding period. And, you know, we know that's not necessarily a simple feat either, as Rebecca just walked us through that. But typically, the company can give some information to shareholders about whether or not the stock could qualify for QSBS. But again, it just always kind of leads back to, you know, the individual owners because of the nuances and the multiple prong tests. And it just really comes down to speaking with their CPAs and their income tax attorneys who will also need to determine whether they are comfortable that the shares that the owner holds meets the requirements. So, you know, I know we've been mentioning a couple of times that there's some gray area, but again, if you think it will qualify, not necessarily anything to rush out and do other than work with your tax advisors to kind of make that final determination. 
Yeah, I'll just add one or two things and trying to keep it simple and straightforward, but not all transactions or sales are created equally. So in terms of the structure of the transaction, if a shareholder is selling some stock, but not others, right? Sometimes you have stock that has hit the five-year mark for some of it, but not all of it. So you want to, in the transaction, make sure that you're optimizing what you're selling if it's not a straightforward sale of your entire interest in the company. And then one other point about the structure of the transaction is sometimes owners will roll over equity or, you know, retain some equity in a new company. So you want to make sure that that rollover equity to the extent you're able to in connection with the transaction will continue to qualify for QSBS going forward. Just going back a second, you referenced a scenario where there was $3 million cost and leveraging up to a $30 million tax-free gain. And as you know, mm-hmm. at least it's been our experience, you know, these founders and, and key senior executives, they typically own stock at practically zero cost basis or pennies on the dollar. Yep. So I yep. think that $3 million limit is a heck of a lot more applicable than than the multiples you're referencing. But in the spirit of really maximizing the tax efficiency, what strategies, if any, can executives consider in order to gain leverage in excess of that $10 million cap? Yeah, that's a great question. So there is something that we practitioners and, and you know lawyers, tax people affectionately refer to as QSBS stacking because you are absolutely right that most of the founders with whom we work are subject to the $10 million gain exclusion and they don't have basis. So stacking is a way to maximize and I guess I'd say multiply the $10 million gain exclusion. So under the tax code, every separate taxpayer is entitled to a $10 million gain exclusion. So it's a taxpayer by taxpayer analysis. So For example, if I have stock with a zero cost basis that is worth $20 million, just in this simple example, if I were to simply turn around and sell it, I would have a $10 million capital gain exclusion. But if I instead were to gift it to my daughter or to a trust for her benefit that is a separate income taxpayer from me, she will have a $10 million gain exclusion as well. So we have just gone and doubled our $10 million gain exclusion and made it a $20 million gain exclusion. Now, you could do that, let's say, 100 times if you are for $100 million. If you have 10 kids, for example, or if you have other people that you want to benefit apart from your kids, you can give your stock to other taxpayers and related taxpayers, right? Family members, trust for their benefit, and they will also qualify. The limitation is on the gift tax side, there's only so much stock or value you can give away before you start incurring a 40% gift tax. So for people who know that they have QSBS and know that there might be a large exit down the line, they can start thinking about this and planning for multiple exclusions early on in the process. You know, there's a lot of different ways we can do this and multiply for taxpayers depending on their goals, but it is a really powerful tool that that we can use for people with the right family structure and the ability to transfer the stock. One additional point here that I just want to make sure I mention is if you do transfer that stock to someone else or trust for their benefit, they do not 
separately have to meet the five-year holding period, your holding period will tack on. So if I've held it for six years and I give half of my stock to my daughter, she's deemed to have held it for the same amount of time as me. I can envision a whole host of people started leaning into their... That's fantastic. Thank you. Good stuff. Good stuff. Joyce, did you have something you wanted to add? Yeah, I would just add that that's where, you know, I, I talk with clients a lot about about the estate and gift tax side of the planning. And, you know, there's really kind of where the QSBS income tax planning and the estate and gift tax planning kind of collides there to some extent. You know, Rebecca mentioned when you get above the estate and gift tax exemptions, that's when you would begin to incur a 40% gift tax. So you have to kind of weigh all of the different considerations there in gifting the stock for the purpose of having separate income tax payers against the efficiencies of the estate and gift tax systems and the parameters in which you have to work regarding the estate and gift tax system. So it's just, you know, again, kind of points to a lot of moving parts. If structured properly can be extremely powerful and save a a lot and be very tax efficient for these business owners. Yeah, no, I mean, Jason and I are, are like a broken record in terms of encouraging people to get on this early and start planning and, and, and getting their team together to put together a thoughtful plan for an efficient outcome. So we're getting towards the end of our time here, and I want to be respectful of everyone's time. I know everybody has a busy schedule. So let me just end it with this last question here. What if one's stock doesn't meet that five-year mark, but otherwise qualifies as QSBS? Yeah, that's a great question. So fortunately, all is not lost if you qualify otherwise, but you don't get to the five-year mark. There is a provision in the tax code that recognizes that this might happen and provides a benefit. It's called a QSBS rollover benefit. So for taxpayers who have owned stock that otherwise qualifies for QSBS, every other requirement is met, but they've held it for a year or two years and the company sold, they have really no control, they can roll over the sale proceeds and they don't have to do all of it. They could do some of it into a new QSB qualifying company within 60 days of the sale and they will defer the capital gain on the portion that is rolled over into the new QSB. If the new QSB hits the five-year mark and that is tacking on the original year or two years, so you have to hold the new one for three or four years in my example, and then that company sells, then in that case, you get to exclude all of that gain, right? So what some people who are serial entrepreneurs might do is they say, okay, I created a company, owned it for two years, it's QSBS, but I didn't hold it for five years, this really great opportunity to sell, and I don't want to pass up this opportunity, but I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm going to take some portion of my gain from that sale, roll it over into my new company that I'm going to start up. As long as the, the ownership periods for both of those hit five years when I ultimately sell the new one, then I've sort of won. That's fantastic. Even if that new company does not qualify for sort of QSBS all along, let's say you put it in a new company, you have all the intention of it being a QSBS qualifying company with an active trader business, and then you change your mind and you go into like finance or leasing or something like that, you still don't have to pay any tax 
on that capital gain until you ultimately exit yourself from that new company. So it can either be a deferral or allow you to hit the five-year mark for a gain exclusion. The requirements there are you have to have held the original QSB stock for at least six months before it's sold, and then you roll it over, and then you have to roll over within 60 days. And then the last thing is you just have to file on your income tax return that you rolled it over. So this is used by a lot of people who just find themselves in the position of not hitting the five-year mark. Gotcha. Well, thank you, Joyce and Rebecca and Jason. I think we gave people a lot of meat to chew on here <laughs> in terms of a very, <laughs> yeah, a, lot here. a very attractive tax strategy to help create a more efficient outcome. So anything that either of you wanted to mention before we wrap it up? I would just like to say thank you all for, for sticking with us and listening. I know it's a lot of information, but for taxpayers who do qualify, it can be so powerful. And if it's a surprise benefit, even better. The other thing I would say is without getting into too much detail, there can be traps in certain transactions that you might undertake with this stock or certain ways that a sale transaction in the secondary market is structured. So if you do have any questions at all, reach out to your tax advisors because it's better to plan and be prepared than be caught off guard and, you know, lose this benefit. Yep. I would echo that, Rebecca, and just that it's, you know, it's not too early to start thinking about and exploring whether or not this could be a benefit. Fantastic. Thank you both so very much. Yes, thank you both. Absolutely. If anyone has any questions, feel free to reach out to us or you can email us at atxwealthpartners at ubs.com. And with that, we will let everyone go and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.